This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. In this episode, I take up the risk management issues around the Texas snowpocalypse, which caused a massive power and water failure across the state of Texas a couple of weeks ago. I talked to longtime business journalist Lauren Steffi, who's covered the energy industry for some 20 years. Lauren takes us through the background facts of the uh, power failure, what the power generation companies did wrong, the missteps by the Texas regulatory uh, apparatus, ERCOT, and what steps can the state of Texas do to rectify this situation going forward. It's a fabulous episode about risk management. I know you will enjoy it. I had a ton of fun talking to Lauren. I also hope you will check out my new podcast, ComTech, on the intersection of compliance and technology with my co-host, Valerie Charles. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Check it out. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And we're going Texan today on you as I have back Lauren Steffi. Uh, Lauren is a well-known writer, uh, pontificator, and deep thinker in the energy space and has been for a long time. So, Lauren, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. Um, Lauren, uh, I think uh, hopefully the rest of the world knows we went through a winter apocalypse a couple of weeks ago where we had a catastrophic failure of the Texas energy grid and delivery of power and water uh, across the state. Today, we're going to focus on power. So maybe you could set set up the stage by telling folks what happened. Yeah, basically, um, we had a, a, you know, a widespread power shortage. We simply weren't generating enough power uh, to meet the needs in, in this time of extremely cold weather, uh, you know, really unprecedented uh, cold weather, um, you know, over the period of, of almost an entire week. Uh, we really, you know, the system was basically taxed uh, in a way that it hadn't been before. Uh, so you had uh, almost 4 million people, um, 4 million households without power at a time when they needed it most. So we had catastrophic systems failures in all uh, types of different energy. We had wind turbines go down because of the cold. We had our single nuclear power plant shut down because of the cold. We had uh, gas-fired plants shut down because of the cold. Um, And so we had really from the mechanical side of things a catastrophic failure. But what did you see really from the power grid side of things? Yeah, there were a couple of things that happened. I mean, you you talk about the failure to the power plants, and that's in many ways, a failure to repair, right? I mean, it, it's it, this doesn't happen in, in other parts of the country where they have weather this cold on a regular basis. Uh, so there are steps that can be taken to, you know, prepare uh, power plants and, and generating facilities for this kind of cold. We just don't usually have to do it here. So companies didn't want to spend the expense and, and really had no, they, they, they weren't ordered to, they had no incentive to. Uh, so it didn't happen. I mean, that's part of it. Um, the other thing that happened, and, and you kind of alluded to this, uh, is uh, the nat- natural gas infrastructure is very critical to our electricity system in Texas, um, more so really than all the other, you know, the wind or solar or nuclear combined. 
Um, and what happened there, what appears to have happened there, is that uh, the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates oil and gas, issued an emergency order that directed uh, gas for heat to be given a priority. That had the unintended consequence of actually reducing the gas that was being sent to power plants uh, to generate electricity. Now, keep in mind, in, within, our, within our grid system, about 60% of households rely on electricity for heat and about 40% rely on gas. So you basically directed this critical fuel to a, a smaller uh, a, you know, population that needed it. The power plants were basically starved for gas. They were running, even the ones that were working were running at a lower capacity. But that had a sort of a feedback loop because then the, the, uh, on the natural gas side, the, the, all the infrastructure, the, the generator, the compressors and other things that keep gas flowing through the system couldn't get the electricity that was needed to keep the gas flowing. And so you had a further decline in gas prices. And so, um, Really, the issues with the electricity shortage started with with uh, uh, this this gas shortage, um, and then moved into the electricity markets. So you mentioned uh, one of the most unique agencies, state agencies in the United States, the Texas Railroad Commission. And although I'd love to visit with you about why a railroad agency is regulating oil and <laughs> gas, it does point to a really a unique uh, regulatory setup in the state of Texas. Could you walk us through? the difference between the Public Utility Commission and ERCOT and each of their roles in this? Yeah, so basically uh, the Railroad Commission, which, you know, as you noted, has nothing to do with railroads. It regulates the oil and gas industry. And uh, it's uh, run by three commissioners who are elected at large, who are elected statewide. Um, The Public Utility Commission oversees electricity and, and telecommunication services, and those three commissioners are appointed by the governor. And under the PUC is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which is the nonprofit grid operator whose job it is is to manage the flow of electricity around the grid and to make sure that, that you know, there's adequate supply where it needs to be and that kind of thing. Um, so the, the, the ERCOT board basically answers to the PUC, who in turn answers to the governor. The Railroad Commission answers directly to the public, and and those two agencies don't typically coordinate efforts too terribly well. As we saw in this situation, um, it didn't seem like they had kind of worked through how this was going to play out. Uh, so that was that was a big problem. And then, you know, once that happened, that created havoc in the in the electricity markets, um, where where prices. It was kind of a weird thing. Prices are supposed to shoot up when there's a shortage, uh, and there clearly was in this case. We lost, you know, over forty thousand megawatts at one point. So, you know, enough to for power about nine million homes went offline. So it was a huge amount of power that we lost. Um, and when that happens, there's supposed to be extreme pricing that kicks in. So normally, you know, our electricity sells for about you know ten dollars between ten and thirty dollars a megawatt. And what's supposed to happen in a situation like this is that price level is supposed to shoot to 9000 okay? And the idea is if you're a generator, you've got every incentive. You can make a year's profit in a very short period of time by putting everything you've got onto the grid, right? So it's, a, it's supposed to create a market incentive to bring, to bring out every scrap of generation we can get our hands on in a time of crisis. That didn't happen this time. Um, 
And it's kind of an arcane situation, but ERCOT basically has an algorithm that ties the wholesale price of electricity to the price of natural gas. And because of this gas shortage, gas prices were shooting up at the same time. And so we never got the we never got these higher levels of caps. They weren't kicking in the way they were supposed to. So even though we're supposed to be a deregulated market, the PUC actually stepped in and mandated higher prices. Okay. Um, What's causing a lot of the fallout we're going to get to here in a minute is that those prices stayed high longer than it appears they should have. So after generation had kind of returned to normal on, on kind of February 18th, they kept those, those emergency pricing caps uh, in place for about 18 hours longer than it would seem was warranted. And that is part of the reason that you now hear so many retailers, electric companies, co-ops uh, crying foul because that made their bills much, much higher. And that's where it's going to ultimately trickle down to, to consumers and all this. Can we add one other wrinkle to this story before we get into some of the meat, which is uh, Texas is not there's, there's a lot of wrinkles. Man. <laughs> Texas is not tied to the national power grid. There's a lot of wrinkles. Can you tell uh, us uh, how Texas came not to be tied to the national power grid and the implications, if any, for what happened to us over the last couple of weeks? This kind of evolved over time. If you go back to you know the early days of electrification. Um, interconnections were a way to kind of expand your your market, expand your base uh, without having to invest in a lot of generation. And as as things grew, uh, there became more and more rules about what we you know had to do if we were going to interconnect. Um, the federal government was going to have some say in how transactions were conducted across state lines and stuff. And so Texas really kind of said, "Look, we're a really big grid as it is." And we have a lot of fuel to generate electricity from. You know, we have, unlike a lot of states, we have natural gas, we have coal, we have uranium, we have wind, solar, which weren't a big thing back in the day, but are now. Um, and, and we have hydropower. So we had a lot of resources from which to generate electricity. And we actually had an abundance of generation. And so the electric company said, let's focus on building out the grid internally as opposed to worrying about interconnecting you know, with somebody else, we still had, if you remember, if you read like Robert Caro's biography of LBJ, I mean, you know, the Hill Country didn't have electricity until the 1930s. So there was a lot of focus on we still have a lot of work to build out internally. We don't need to be worrying about, you know, providing power to other states and that kind of thing. Um, and then in the in the 60s, you had the cascading blackout in the Northeast, which prompted, a, a you know, kind of a federal um I guess you'd say crackdown or, or more federal scrutiny over interconnections and, and, you know, what kind of reliability measures needed to be taken. And Texas basically just said, you know what, we'll make it easy. We'll create our own grid operator and we'll do our own thing. And you won't have to worry about cascading, cascading grid failures affecting us. And, and indeed, there's been several since then, um, including one in 2003 that knocked out a good chunk of the East Coast and part of Canada um, and, you know, we're isolated from that. We, we don't if if one starts here in Texas, it's not going to go beyond Texas. Um, in this last crisis, you know, we got about four minutes away from a cascading failure that would have taken the grid down for days, weeks, maybe even months. Um, and, but that would not have gone beyond the boundaries of Texas. OK. Um, and the same token, if something happens in, you know, Arkansas or Missouri or whatever, we don't have to worry about it coming across our grid. Um so 
you know, there's some benefits to it. Um, it's also made it easier for us to build out, uh, you know, wind power because we could build our, you know, transmission lines that other parts of the country are having a real hard time getting built. We could build them uh, because it was all going to be within our state and within one jurisdiction. So, um, you know, the question of, of would it have made a difference in, in the case of this last uh, outage uh, or last situation? I don't think it would have because uh, there just wasn't, I mean, you know, everybody was dealing with cold temperatures. The other, the other grids were, were uh, you know, dealing with the same thing, and they just didn't have a lot of power to spare. So I don't think that it would have made a terrible amount of difference. And, and I think it, it also should remind us that, you know, um, we could be, t if, if we were interconnected, we could be tapped in situations like that to provide power elsewhere. So, um, you know, the interconnection wasn't the problem. The problem was that we didn't have an adequate system in place within Texas to ensure reliability. And, and you know, rather than, you know, saying, well, our reliability should come from somewhere else, um, you know, we have a market that ought to work. Um, and, and so what we need to do is make sure that we are structuring the market in such a way that re reliability is accounted for as well. Or one of the interesting uh, fallouts that has started <clears throat> to um, appear is the financial fallout. And of course, immediately with the uh, megawatt price at $9,000 per hour, people knew that uh, in, there would be, could be an increase in billing. Uh, companies, businesses could uh, have catastrophic invoices sent to them. But what's really intrigued me is a much wider fallout. You mentioned uh, the co-ops, and uh, I'm for Brian, you went to A&M, so Brazos Valley Co-op is always uh, something that's on my mind. But even in the bond market, I was wondering if you could t tell us a little bit about this financial fallout and, and what's what it means. Yeah, so so companies that buy power in the wholesale market have to basically post a deposit, uh, or, or they call it collateral, but it basically works like a deposit with ERCOT. Um, and, and as the price of electricity goes up, obviously that deposit goes up. Um, so what happened, because those caps were left in place for so long, those numbers got really big. And basically now, if you want to buy uh, electricity, you're, you're posting these deposits with ERCOT based on last week's pricing, right, or, or the, the pricing during the crisis. And so um, it's simply a, a, an amount that many of these companies can't pay. Many of them are getting bills from ERCOT for generation they had to buy at these prices. Uh, but they, in some cases, uh, you know, you, you have like a, a municipal utility, for example, it's generating power, right? So it may be selling some power at these very, very high, high rates, but it's also buying power. Well, what's happened is some of those utilities have been, have been billed for the amount that they owe for the purchases, but they haven't received the, the revenue from the sales yet. And so it's created a real credit crisis, um, you know, in, in, in the power markets. Um, ERCOT itself is looking at about a billion-dollar shortfall, a little over a billion-dollar shortfall from all this. And the fallout, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Brazos Valley Electric Co-op has filed for bankruptcy. Um, you know, it's probably not going to be the last. Um, in the competitive retail markets like Houston and Dallas, where, where people can choose their electric company and who sells them electricity, uh, many of those retailers are on the ropes. Uh, many of them were already struggling. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of them, you know, uh, I, you know, I hate to say they're all going to go out of business. I don't, I don't know if they all are, but I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are really, really struggling financially. You're probably going to see a lot of consolidation 
probably more uh, more retailers getting bought up by generators because um, they need they need deeper pockets than they than they have right now. What does that mean for consumers? I mean, you know, there are systems in place to try to shield consumers from these prices, but ultimately, you know, if you have a fixed rate fixed rate plan um, in Houston, for example, you know, you're not going to see an immediate impact. But when you go to renew your contract, even if you shop around, you may be seeing higher levels of pricing than what you've seen before. Because at some point, these companies are going to have to try to make up at least some of this. Um, so I think that, that, you know, we're going to be dealing with a fallout for, for quite a while. Well, one of the other unique things about Texas government is uh, we, our legislature meets biennially in a very biblical 140 days and nights of uh, Texas governance. Uh, many say that that is set up so that they don't screw things up every year. It's only every other year. But now we have the legislature uh, beginning hearings on this. Is there a, perhaps a legislative fix or at least something the legislature can do separate and apart from the governor on this? Absolutely. I mean, look, the legislature is that, that is where the fix has to come from. OK, I mean, it is squarely on them. It has been on them. Uh, this is not, you know, all the stuff that happened with the, you know, the, the lack of weatherization, the, uh, the lack of reserve capacity, reserve generation to get us through times like this. This has been a known problem for a very long time. Uh, I was writing about this at the Houston Chronicle in 2011. Uh, Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston, when he was in the legislature, he submitted a bill uh, to address this problem, never even got a hearing. Uh, we have gone through close calls in 2014 and 2018, 2019, not just in the winter, but in the summer. You know, 2011, we had a crisis in the winter and in the summer, and we still didn't do anything about it. So lawmakers definitely are the ones that, that have had the ability to fix this for over a decade, and they haven't done it. And the fix is really pretty simple. You know, um, it requires a mandate. Uh, we want to believe this is a free market. But the fact is that the free market does not reward reliability. Uh, generators have no incentive to build reliability into the system. So, you know, we have to mandate. Um, it, it's really the only way to do it. And what that looks like, how you go about doing it, I mean, there's a number of different ways. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things legislators have been very reluctant to do is, is pass through any sort of surcharge to consumers to pay for reserve generating capacity. I got to think that, you know, there's an awful lot of Texans right now that are saying, you know, if I had to pay a dollar more a month on my electric bill to make sure the, the heat stayed on the next time it gets down to 12 degrees, eh, I'd, be doing, I'd be willing to do that. You know, I, I mean, it, it's hard to know. Um, the further we, we get away from this crisis, the less people may feel that way. But I think that, that there are certainly different mechanisms you could use to address these problems, but it's going to require a governmental edict, if you will, that says this has to happen. You've covered the legislature uh, multiple times, uh, both uh, as a business columnist, as an energy columnist, and, and on other issues. Can we actually have an intelligent conversation in the legislature about these problems, or will it degenerate pretty quickly to blue versus red or green versus not green? I, I think that's already that attempt has already been made. Um, and, and keep in mind, I, I have never been a political reporter, and I'm very cynical about politics and, and the way they work. But I think that, you know, what you see now is if you are an elected official, there is a, a lot of incentive to not actually govern, to not actually do anything that results in outcomes. 
um, that's how you get to stay in office. You know, so so what you do is you deflect, right? I mean, if you look at what happened nationally with the COVID response, right? We have this global pandemic. It's a major health crisis. And instead of, of coming together and, and figuring out reasonable things we can do to get through it and help each other out, we start arguing about whether we should wear masks or not. And it becomes a constitutional crisis. And suddenly we're all at each other's throats. And, you know, just trying to protect yourself becomes a political statement. Um, well, you know, that made it a lot easier to for everybody to ignore the fact that, you know, we weren't getting vaccines out. We weren't we weren't, you know, coming up with a unified plan for how to slow the spread of this thing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If you look at what's happening, you know, what 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 almost happened here in Texas, um, the very first thing our governor did, the very first statement he made about the power outages was to go on Sean Hannity and attack the Green New Deal and say this is evidence that the Green New Deal would be a disaster. Right. So so you've got the governor in a time of crisis trying to score political points by by attacking a policy that has not even been implemented yet before he addresses the crisis at home. Right. Um, You know, you saw Rick Perry go out and talk about grid isolation and our need for grid independence. These are not issues that had anything to do. You know, renewables did not have any major impact on this on the outcome of this situation. It didn't have anything to do with the, the power failures that we faced. Uh, grid isolation didn't have anything to do with it. This was an attempt to divert attention away from the fact that government has failed to keep people safe for 10 years. And they knew it was a problem and they didn't do it. And that's not on, only on the governor. It's on it's on the legislature as well. But, you know, they have a chance to try again and get it right. And, you know, they need to take it. Well, let's change the focus a little bit, because uh, you did something in the pandemic I think many people would have liked to do, but very few did, which was you sat down and wrote a novel. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And and is it something you'd wanted to do for some time? I know you're a prolific author. It's typically been in the nonfiction area. Uh, You've obviously been involved in podcasts as well. Uh, But tell us about the novel. Yeah, it was uh, the the novel's called The Big Empty, and it's kind of a a grand... uh, uh, grand novel of Texas and West Texas and, and the culture clash uh, that comes when a, uh, when a, a high tech uh, company wants to build a chip plant uh, in, in the middle of, of West Texas. Um, and it really, you know, it, it, it was actually something that I had been kind of playing around with for a, a good number of years. And um, I, I was just fascinated by this idea, you know, Texas has so many cultures that come together and so many, you know, we have sort of this great heritage, but we also have all these new ideas that are constantly coming in. And I, I just sort of was working around those ideas. And and I had actually done a lot of work on the book uh, uh, over the years. And, and so, you know, the, the final push during the pandemic was more just let's get this ready to go and get it out the door. But, um, uh, yeah, I was very, very excited to, to see it done. I've been doing uh, – some, some book publishing uh, of my own on the side, and we had a couple of other titles ahead of this. So I had sort of tested the mechanism out and, and saw that it worked. And uh, I just figured, you know, why not? I mean, um, you know, it's a great time. People people can't leave. Maybe they want to read a book. So uh, we'll see how it goes. It should be out uh, uh, hopefully in the next, uh, next month or two. Um, there have been a few, you know, People talk about the impact of COVID. Uh, it's been devastating for the printing industry. Uh, book printing in particular has really been affected. So it's very hard to know. You know, printing deadlines keep shifting around. But uh, uh, we're hoping to get it out uh, in the next month or so. 
so I'm waiting on my latest book to be published as well. Uh, I, they haven't used that excuse with me yet, but I suspect that's coming as well. So, uh, but uh, this, uh, I'm really excited to, to read this. Uh, you know, I've loved your stuff over the years and for you to write a book of fiction uh, with all of the, the, the passion that you bring to the nonfiction world, I think is, is really going to be a lot of fun for a lot of Texans. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. And maybe we can come back and visit about the big empty when, uh, when it gets published. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. So, um, Lauren, if uh, anyone wanted to follow up with you or find out a little bit more about 30-point strategies and the, the consulting work that you do, uh, how can they find out? Well, uh, you know, my website is very simple. It's just laurensteffi.com, uh, and that kind of compiles, you know, all the different things that I'm doing. Uh, if you're interested in my book specifically, you can go to uh, stonycreekpublishing.com, which is my publisher. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm out there. Uh, you can, you can send an email to either of those websites and, uh, love to hear from folks. Lauren, always, always great to visit with you. You were one of the pe- first people I thought of, uh, uh, while I had no power about having a podcast on this topic, we've had a lot of information you've written about it in a co- you know, one of your columns for Texas monthly. So I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Absolutely. And there's more to come on that. So, uh, keep watching the Texas monthly site. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication pre-sale of my latest book, The Compliance Handbook, Second Edition, published by LexisNexis. It will be published in April. Quite simply, this is the best single volume, single author book on compliance programs. The creation, the design, the implementation, and the enhancements of best practices compliance programs are all laid out in this book. If you're in the compliance field, in the compliance discipline, this is the book for you, far better than any other book on the market, if I may say so myself. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for a pre-sale. There's also a discount. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.